0: Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly order of Abiyar. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord." He is never to take wine or other fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he had stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favour and taken away my disgrace among the people.
1: All right, so how about we just bow in prayer. Father, we want to thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that your word is uh, powerful and effective. Uh, Father, we uh, thank you that we can come together and hear your word spoken now here and next door with the uh, young people's ministry thank you father god for your holy spirit who uh, takes your word and grants us understanding and and uh, applies it to our hearts and our lives and so we pray for that now father we come to church sometimes with other things on our mind we just do pray that you'd help us to clear our minds and focus on what you're saying to us through your word today we pray these things in jesus name Amen. The stories about Jesus in the Bible are mostly just made up. Uh, You know, we read some of it early on, didn't we? You know, angels appearing, the archangel Gabriel appearing to, um, to, uh, you know, Elizabeth and to Mary and to Zechariah. Uh, Stories about, you know, sick people, uh, getting healed without going to a doctor, uh, crowds of people, thousands of people being fed with just a few fish, few loaves of bread, um, people being raised from the dead. I mean, it's, uh, it's fantasy. It's, uh, it's nonsense. It's myth. It's, uh, it's the you know, stories of ancient, deluded people. And, uh, in fact, um, can we have a, an even bigger boo for... You want to throw things at me? Yeah. So if you're, if you're new to us, if you're new to us today, uh, let me assure you, uh, I don't believe anything that I just said. But the thing is that some of your friends do. Some of the, the people that you uh, rub shoulders with at work or at school and uh, in your family and in your neighbourhood, uh, people do think that uh, the stuff which we read in the Gospels is is made up that it's that it's myth that it's and some for some people particularly people with a more religious kind of bent uh, what they might say and this has been something which has was common amongst certain sort of theologians at one stage uh, is that uh, the gospels are good um but what we've got to do is we've got to we've got to strip away all of the um all of the nonsense. We've got to strip away all of the, the miracles. We've got to stri- strip away all of the supernatural kind of stuff that's just been added into it. And when we do that, uh, we get down to the bare bones, and we will actually, we will actually meet the true historical Jesus, uh, the uh, the great moral philosopher who taught us how to live, the Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes. The golden rule, that kind of stuff. Just got to strip away all of the, all of the nonsense about miracles. Now, that's the religious kind of person. Uh, other people in our society are a whole lot more um, antagonistic than that, and I'm not quite sure which one's worse, actually. Uh, but uh, there are others who will say that, and um, uh, they're very passionate, and they'll say, well, uh, for for modern 21st century intelligent, educated people, you simply cannot believe the rubbish that you find in the Bible. It's even dangerous to believe these myths about Jesus. Uh, you shouldn't, certainly should not teach it to children. <laughs> certainly not teach them to children in schools, especially in Victoria. <laughs> uh, you might have caught up on that news this week. Uh, because it's dangerous, because people go and start basing their lives on something that's just, well, the deluded thoughts of ancient people. Now, as a Christian, how how do you respond to this kind of claim? I think it's an important issue, uh, particularly in our increasingly secularised society, uh, as we are seeking to engage, we're interacting with non-Christians each day, and we're Seeking to engage with people, and really, our goal is to actually help people to to get to know Jesus, to get to know the real historical Jesus, and to put their faith in Him. Now, um, every year we try to look at a section of uh, one of the Gospels. In fact, <clears throat> over the last six or seven years, we've actually worked through the entire Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and uh, Mark and John. One of the Gospels that we haven't touched a lot, except Christmas Day services and so on, is the Gospel of Luke. It's a long Gospel, but I think we need to actually get into it. And uh, we'll do it on and off over the next couple of years, and we'll look at Acts as well. But um, today I just want us to to start getting into it, because when we do look at the Gospel of, of Luke, we find that it's actually got power. It's got great power. It's got power to, uh, to surprise, uh, even to shock or horrify uh, some of our friends. Uh, our friends who so easily just dismiss it as being first century nonsense. So can I get you to open up your Bibles at Luke's Gospel, chapter 1? And although we had a longer reading uh, today, we're actually going to only focus on four verses. Uh, the very first four verses of Luke chapter 1, and the reason we're focusing on them is because they're, they're packed with significance, because they, uh, they tell us uh, who this gospel was written for, they tell us how this gospel was written, and they tell us why this gospel was written. You know the one question that, they, that the first four verses do not answer for us? They, they tell us who it was written for, but they do not tell us who the gospel was written by. I don't know if you've realised that or not. But just scan your eyes over the first four verses there. Uh, does it say anything? Does the author identify himself in any way? I think you'll find the answer is no. No. You can scan your eyes through the whole of the Gospel of Luke and I think you'll also find that nowhere does the author say who he is. There you go. Now, how do we know, therefore, that it was written by Luke? Well, essentially, it's because the early Christians, uh, the Christians of the early church and uh, Christians after the New Testament uh, had been completed, uh, they uh, they attributed this gospel to Paul's travelling companion uh, Luke. Uh, now remember that the early Christians, the post New Testament Christians, they lived very close to the time when uh, this gospel was written and uh, best estimates are that uh, this gospel was written in the 60s AD because uh, uh, for various reasons. Uh, but uh, they they had had this gospel um, uh, copied, handed down to them. As people were handing it down, they'd say, well, this is what Luke wrote. Uh, here's the account of Jesus written, written by Luke. And they would pass that on. So it was common knowledge uh, for them uh, that it was written by Luke. And that starts to appear in the writings of the early uh, church leaders as well. Uh, they started to, to put it down in writing that this was the gospel according to Luke, written by Luke. So what do we know about Luke? Who was he? Well, we know a bit about Luke from the letters of Paul. Uh, So, for example, in uh, Colossians chapter 4, Paul describes Luke as being a very dear friend and a doctor, a physician, which would have been handy to Paul uh, at various times. Uh, In Philemon, uh, Paul's letter to Philemon, Luke is also mentioned, and there he's described as being a fellow worker. So he's not just a doctor, he's a fellow worker in the cause of the gospel, in the spread of the gospel. Uh, In uh, 2 Timothy, we know that Luke stuck by Paul even when others had deserted him. There's another uh, a co-worker by the name of Demas who Paul says deserted him because he was in love with the world that's sad isn't it but he points out that Luke is with me Luke is with me so what do we know about Luke from that brief summary well first he's, Luke is loyal uh, Luke is a doctor uh, he's a fellow worker and is a good friend of the Apostle Paul We also know that there's connections between uh, Luke's gospel and the book of Acts. Uh, Can I get you to just flip over to Acts chapter 1 for a moment? We'll, uh, We'll come back to Luke chapter 1. But in Acts chapter 1, let me read the first couple of verses for you. I think that's on page 770 in my Bible, in the Pew Bible. Yeah. So Luke chapter Acts chapter one verse one reads. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit of the apostles he had chosen. So what we see there is that the the author refers to his former book. By the way, did you mean, did you notice the name Theophilus there? Just hold that thought for a moment. But he, he, he mentions his former book as if uh, the the former book is part one, telling about the life of June, Jesus, all that Jesus did until the day he was taken up to heaven. So that's kind of part one. And then this new book, the book of Acts, uh, is part two of his work. And it uh, describes what happened after Jesus was taken up to heaven. Now, one of the things which we notice in the book of Acts, which uh, is a little bit uh, strange uh, at first glance, is that although it's the story of the spread of the gospel... Uh, throughout um, from, from Judea uh, into Samaria and into all of the world across Asia Minor uh, through into Greece across into, into, into Italy and so on although Acts is the spread of the gospel around the known world uh, and even though we know that the dear friend of Paul uh, was, uh, was Luke he was the guy who stood with Paul through thick and thin, then it's interesting to note that in the entire book of Acts that the name Luke does not rate a single mention. He's not mentioned once in the whole of the Acts of the Apostles. Why might that be? Well, come over to Acts chapter 16 for a moment. Acts chapter 16... And here, the author of Acts describes uh, some of the travels of Paul and his uh, co-workers. And in verse seven, in verse seven, we see that um, uh, I want to ask this question: In verse seven, uh, sorry, in verse six, in verse six, how are the people who travelled with Paul described? How does, how does the author of Acts describe? Paul's fellow travelers he describes them as his companions do you see that so Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia Uh, down in verse 7 you know it says when they came to the border of, of Mysia but then scan down to verse 10 where it says after Paul had seen the vision we got ready at once to leave from Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, what's changed in the language there between those verses? The author's gone from speaking in the the third person, uh, plural, to speaking in the first person, plural. So he's gone from talking about they and them to talking about we and us. What do you think has happened there? It seems that the author is now reading himself into the story, isn't he? The the author has joined Paul and his companions and from there on through Acts, uh, we get this constant, almost constant reference to we did this, we did that, and so on. Friends, there is only one of Paul's co-workers his key co-workers who is not named specifically in the book of Acts and can you guess who that might be? That's Dr. Luke. He's not mentioned specifically and the reason being, well, uh, because he's now included himself. He is in the we uh, that is used to describe Paul's companions from Luke 16 onwards. The early church tells us that... um, uh, that it was Luke who wrote uh, the Gospel, and so uh, it's Luke also who's written uh, the book of Acts the two, uh, part one and part two of dr. Luke's contribution to the New Testament. Now uh, Luke's contribution to the New Testament is a substantial contribution. Uh, these are both major, major, major pieces of of writing. Uh, In fact, uh, together, put together Luke and Acts, and what that means is that Luke has contributed more words to the New Testament than any other person, including the Apostle Paul. Luke is is the number one major contributor to the New Testament by words, by sheer volume of material. And it's perhaps for that reason that these are such magisterial works that uh, he, he mentions in introductions to both of the books the name of the particular man that uh, I pointed out earlier on. Go back to Luke chapter 1 for a moment. So in Luke 1... <clears throat> I have to find it in my own Bible. So let me just read verses 1 to 4 for you again. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So who, who did Luke write this gospel for? Theophilus. Theophilus. Now, what, what do we know about Theophilus? Theophilus. Well, I've got to tell you, we don't know very much about Theophilus at all. Uh, we, we do know that um, both Luke and Acts were written for him. Uh, we know what his name means. Uh, his name means lover of God. Isn't that a nice name? Theos meaning God, Philair meaning to love. Uh, Theos Philair. Uh, the lover of God. Anyone thinking of having a baby uh, anytime soon? <laughs> oh, the lover of God—that's a, that's a tremendous name. But he's not just uh, when Luke, you know, when Luke writes to him, he he doesn't he, he doesn't just say, uh, uh, you know, to my to my old mate, um, you know, Theophilus. Uh, how does he address Theophilus? He addresses the most excellent. Theophilus. What does that imply about Theophilus? Well, it may say something about his social standing. Uh, it may be that uh, he's part of the nobility. He's a he's a, or a, he's a man of high standing in the community, a, a wealthy man perhaps. And uh, that leads some to uh, suggest, and I think it makes reasonable sense, that Theophilus may actually be a patron. That uh, you know, you know, what a patron is. A, 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 an artist or an author, or you know, needs to do work, and a, a wealthy patron actually supplies their needs so that they can be doing work that they don't get paid for. And it uh, does seem—we can't prove it—but it seems, and it makes sense, that uh, Theophilus may well have been a wealthy patron who uh, uh, was, um, was who supported Luke in his work of researching, of writing, and of publishing uh, these two uh, large books. Now, it's particularly um, an attractive idea that that is who Theophilus is because of how the Gospel was written. Uh, Luke tells us a bit about how his uh, first book came about. If you have a look in verses 1 and 2... Uh, in verses 1 and 2, firstly, he says that there are other people, in fact, there are many people, who have also written down accounts, have uh, drawn up accounts of the things which have been fulfilled amongst us. Do you see where he says that? Uh, so what, what he's saying here is that there's, I'm not the only one who's done this. There's others who've written stuff. Uh, they've put it down in writing about the life and the teaching and the events surrounding, uh, surrounding Jesus. I'm not the only one. But secondly, he says that this information which has been handed down, which other people have written about, uh, has been handed down from those who were actual eyewitnesses. He describes them in two ways, doesn't he? He describes them as being eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. Uh, of the Word rather, servants of the Word, which means that there's a double sense of what it means to be a witness. They actually witnessed the events, but then they took that witness out to others. When you're teaching and preaching the Word, you're witnessing to others, in their case, about things that they actually witnessed. Now, what kind of people might they have been? Who, who do you think he might be referring to here? Well, it would surely have to be, at the very least, the... Um, the 12 disciples including Matthias because he was added to replace Judas but he was someone who had been with Jesus from the beginning and uh, it would have included other disciples as well uh, who were not part of that inner group but who were, uh, uh, were followers of Jesus and had witnessed the events surrounding his life. Um, including, I uh, might add, Uh, people who were there even before Jesus was born because the events that are described to us immediately after in verse 5 about an angel appearing to Elizabeth, uh, to Mary, to Zechariah, that information came from somewhere, didn't it? That information came from people who were there Maybe even Elizabeth and Mary and Zechariah or the family members. Right? In fact, um, uh, we we also know that um, uh, that some of the the others who drew up the accounts of Jesus, uh, we still have those accounts, don't we? I uh, think Matthew, uh, uh, Mark, and John. It's even possible, and scholars say it's probable that Luke had a copy of Mark's gospel in front of him as he was uh, writing this because much of uh, what is in Mark is also in Luke. Uh, that's speculative. And we do we can say for sure that Luke has written his own gospel, he's done his own work, because uh, in verse 3 of what he says about, about how he's written it, he says, and I quote, that I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. You see that? I have carefully, I have carefully invested, investigated everything from the beginning. Now, Luke never met Jesus himself, but he hasn't just gone on hearsay. Uh, as a companion of the Apostle Paul, Luke uh, gained introductions to, to people who most certainly had met Jesus. For example, in uh, in Acts chapter 21, uh, Paul uh, took Luke and others to Jerusalem and we're told that in Jerusalem that they met with James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the Jerusalem church, and they met with all the elders of the Jerusalem church. These were people who would have been there, who would have seen and been eyewitnesses to the life and the ministry of Jesus. He says, I have carefully investigated. And more than that, he goes on to say that I have written an orderly account, an orderly account. Now, a few years ago, I, I remember I tried to read this book which was, um, it was a biography of a famous Presbyterian minister. Not many of those, I might add. Um, but it was a biography of a famous Presbyterian minister. And in the in the preface, the author was very very keen to tell the reader that uh, that what he had done, he said, "I've I've gathered together lots of information. Uh, I've gathered together, you know, his diary entries. I've gathered together letters that he wrote and letters that other people wrote to him. I've gathered together stuff about him in the newspapers and what other people have. I've gathered it all together, and I've." St- and what he'd done is he'd stitched it all together and put it in his book uh, without actually um, adding much to it. And he was quite proud about that because he was saying, I'm not actually imposing my thinking uh, on this uh, story of this man's life. He thought that was a good thing. I thought it was dreadful. I thought it was, it was pathetic. It was, it, was, it, was, it was all over the place. There was no logic, there was no structure to it. Uh, There were stories that just didn't fit together and it was just like raw material, just data, just whacked in between two hard covers. And after a while I just put it down. I couldn't read it anymore. It was just, have you ever read a book like that? Have you ever tried listening to a sermon like that? (laughs) Now, you don't have to answer that question. Uh, It's a bit cheeky, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you see, that's not what Luke has done, has he? Uh, Luke hasn't just collected all of these eyewitness accounts and just slapped them together and stuck them in a book and had it uh, published. Now, in verse 3, he's written an orderly account. He's carefully investigated the eyewitness reports And then, under the sovereign inspiration of God, he has written a logical, structured, and orderly account. And as we read through Luke's Gospel, we can actually see that structure, which is unique to his Gospel. Uh, For example, a a very, very summarised structure would be that uh, from chapter one through to the early uh, early part of chapter four, that's all about the birth of Jesus and takes us up to his uh, uh, the very beginnings of his ministry. And then from the latter part of chapter 4 through to chapter 9, that's all about his ministry in the region of Galilee. And then when we get to chapter 9, verse 51, in chapter 9, verse 51, that's a pivotal point in Luke's gospel. The whole gospel turns on uh, chapter 9 verse 51 because there Luke tells us that Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. And in the rest of the gospel from there for the next 14 chapters it's all moving forward. It's all on this journey that takes us to the great climax in Jerusalem uh, of his death, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven as both Saviour and Lord. Luke has written an orderly account because you see friends, Luke has a purpose. In verse four, addressing Theophilus, and by implication, any person who happens to pick up this gospel and start reading it. In verse 4 there, he says, I've written this account so that you may know the certainty of the things which you've been taught. Now, we don't know anything about the faith of Theophilus, where he was on his journey. Uh, We know that he'd been taught about Jesus, but the question is, how could a man like Theophilus, a nobleman, how could he be certain? Why should he not be sceptical? A lot of people these days are sceptical. People we know and love are sceptical. And in one sense, that's perfectly understandable. I mean, angels appearing in the sky, singing praises to God, to shepherds. You know, Stories about outcast lepers being cured. Stories about paralytics getting up and walking away on their own two feet. Stories about blind people, deaf people, mute people suddenly receiving their senses and being able to live as if they'd never been blind, mute or deaf. Stories that would have intrigued Dr. Luke. But stories about a man who could when he had to speak and he could control the wind and control waves stories about a man who could drive out demons and raise the dead and was himself raised from the grave these things just don't happen miracles don't happen and when you're dead friends you're dead which in one sense is Luke's point of course these things don't happen normally. But what if they did? What if it was claimed that these things had happened? What if it was claimed that there was a man who was just like this? Be worth investigating, don't you think? Because the implications are enormous. The implications are Earth-shattering, the implications are life-changing. And it's got implications for our world today. Tony Morfitt was one of Australia's, he's still alive, I understand, but he uh, used to be one of Australia's leading scriptwriters. Now, I'm talking back a few years, back into the 1980s, but those of you around in those days, you might remember some of these uh, shows on TV. Uh, who remembers Blue Healers, Flying Doctors, A Country Practice? And here's one that Cassie used to watch at home in Malaysia and shaped her views about Australia The Sullivans. <laughs> well, Tony uh, Morfitt uh, was a scriptwriter. He wrote scripts for all of those kind of shows. Are those shows fact or fiction? They're fiction, aren't they? They're made-up stories. they you know, it's that's the start, that's the, the art of a a fictional scriptwriter. But he also, before then, worked as a journalist for the Daily Telegraph. Well, that may still be fiction, but um, he he worked for ABC, the epitome of factual <coughs> investigative journalistic reporting. Writing about his life as a non-Christian, this is what he said, and I quote, he said, I had it made. People were paying me obscene amounts of money to entertain them. I kept on winning little statuettes. I didn't need any of this God stuff. As a journalist, he knew factual reporting. As a scriptwriter, he knew fiction. One day, he said, <clears throat> at home one day, for some strange reason, he picked up a Gideon's Bible that some years earlier he had stolen from a motel room in Brisbane. <laughs> and he later wrote about that, saying this, and I quote, I started to read the Gospels. And I found to my horror that I was reading documentary, that I was reading reporting, that I was reading history. He knows fiction. It was his craft. He knows history. Also his craft. And to our sceptical non-Christian, he became a Christian, by the way. And I think that this is just part of the issue, that to our sceptical non-Christian friends, well, we can always suggest that they actually actually read Luke's Gospel. Just pick it up. Just read it. Look, if it's just first century mythology, it won't do you any harm to read it. you know. Have a read of it. See what you think. Because this book has got power. This got, book has got the power to draw the person into it, understand that they're actually reading something which has been carefully investigated and has been written as an orderly account of something which was worth writing because the events are actually so unique. It's the uniqueness of the life and teaching and the ministry of Jesus. It means that Luke had to record it. They might even be surprised, even shocked, to discover that it makes sense, that it's true. And for us as well, for you and me, uh, we should be wanting, like Theophilus, we should be wanting to to be certain of the things which we're believing, Uh, that we're not just being gullible and believing in fantasy, because as Paul says himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that if, if these things are not true, uh, if, if Jesus has not risen from the dead, then we who are basing our lives on these things are to be more pitied than any other person because we're believing a lie. But Dr Luke says, no, actually, it's not a lie. It's actually true. I've done the research, I've done the work, I've carefully investigated and I've written this gospel so that you too may have that certainty. It's going to be exciting as we get into Luke's gospel. I'm looking forward to it very much. Why don't we just pray about that now. Gracious Father, we thank you for Dr. Luke. We thank you for his uh, faithfulness. Uh, that under your sovereign guiding hand that he uh, uh, used his uh, natural abilities, his intellect, uh, the connections that he had with people to thoroughly research, to investigate the claims that had been made about Jesus and that he has written down for us not uh, something which is uh, uh, difficult to understand but is an orderly account Uh, and he's done so so that we might have the certainty of the things which we've been taught. Father, we pray for our society. We pray that many, many more people would simply read the, read the Gospels, learn about Jesus, make up their minds for themselves. We pray for ourselves, Father God, that we too would be people who uh, study the Scriptures and uh, allow uh, the, the Gospel of Luke to uh, shape our minds and to change our lives. We pray these things in... Jesus name amen